I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is Please Go On. My guest this week is Florida Senator Marco Rubio, the top Republican on the Senate Intelligence Committee and a member of the Gang of Eight, which makes him privy to the nation's biggest secrets. He wrote an op-ed for The Post on March 18th, arguing that China is complicit in Russia's war on Ukraine. I think we've reached a point now where there's broad acknowledgement that China poses a a real near-peer adversary unlike any we've ever confronted. I think the challenge now is that all the muscle memory up here in terms of policymaking is built on a world that doesn't exist anymore. Rubio has been a leading hawk toward China for years, and I wanted to talk through how to confront what he sees as the larger threat. Here's our conversation. You wrote in your op-ed that Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine has laid bare that the Moscow-Beijing axis is real, and it's a growing threat to the United States and to freedom worldwide. We obviously saw the Russians asking for China's help a few weeks ago, but what's your sense for what level of assistance China is providing Russia in its continuing war on Ukraine? Well, uh, my my sense is if they could figure out a way to uh, help them uh, get access to dollars and transact business through an alternative to the SWIFT system, they would explore it trying to do that. Um, I think if they were asked for military hardware of some sort, uh, they would also be willing to do that, although obviously that takes longer to produce and develop and um, produce and, and deliver especially in the middle of a conflict. I don't think they could deliver it quick enough to make a difference. But I think ultimately China is going to try to do as much as it can without getting caught. And then even if they do, um, I think ultimately the decision they've made is they view Russia as an ally and this broader need to confront the West and America in particular. And, um, and I think they've also calculated that the more powerful Russia is, the more resources we have to spend on Russia, and then the less resources and attention there is to be spent on China and the, and the Indo-Pacific. You wrote in your op-ed that the U.S. must resist perceiving China as a potential tamer of Putin. And also you've said that one of the greatest foreign policy mistakes of the last generation was thinking that we could have shared interests with China without shared values. Do you think that there's any real politic way to play Russia and China off each other like we did during the Civil War or, or during during the Cold War? I'm sorry. Or is that moment sort of past? Yeah, it's a very different moment. I mean, at that time you had, in essence, Russia was the senior partner in that relationship. And it was just a different dynamic than we face today. Uh, so Russia is not the Soviet Union. It doesn't have its size or its economic weight, even though the Soviet Union's economic weight was nothing comparable to what China poses today. I don't know what the world looks like 50 years from now. I think they could ultimately have some issues in in, uh, Central Asia that they would run into each other on, probably concerned about each other in the Arctic region. But in the short to midterm, I don't think China views Russia as a threat. I think they view the United States as a, and the West writ large as trying to impede their rise and their rightful place in the world. And so, and I think from Vladimir Putin's perspective, uh, he, he believes that uh, the post-Cold War period has been abused by America and the West and, and that it, not, part of his legacy is going to be to reset it. You introduced a bill that would impose sanctions on any Chinese bank that attempts to help the Russians escape our sanctions. Has there been any bipartisan appetite for this? Is this something that that might happen? 
We've had initial discussions uh, with some members who I think would be interested at this point, uh, but we haven't had any firm commitments yet. Uh, I think there is some broader interest among members of our um, on my side of the aisle, and uh, we're obviously exploring that. Uh, but I don't have anything, you know, in my hand as of the moment that we're doing this interview, <laughs> like people names I can give you. But but I, I, I we will have sponsors, and we'd love for it to be bipartisan. We're so much more interlinked with China than Russia, and you're right that we cannot afford right now to do to China what we've done to Russia because they make our iPhones and provide rare earth materials that power our weapon systems and electric cars. How do we reduce our economic dependency on Beijing to improve our resiliency in this long-term conflict against this growing adversary? I think it starts with identifying what are the critical industries to our country. What are the things we need to either have a domestic capability to produce or an allied capability that's reliable and and, uh, that can't be used against us as leverage. And then then setting about to ensure that that's available to us. Um, and, and, And so some of that does involve what people would traditionally call industrial policy. Not that I want American, I don't want the uh, the government to own the means of production. But I think there are industries that we have to have in, a native and domestic capability in. So whether it's an over-reliance on supply chains from abroad, like from China, on the basic ingredients in pharmaceuticals, whether it's semiconductors, it's a lot of the things you've heard about traditionally. And to those who say that this is a departure, we, are, we, have, a, we have an industrial policy when it comes to the ability to make airplanes and the ability to make munitions and the ability, all of our defense contracts, our large ones are all with American uh, companies. And the reason is very simple. We don't ever want to depend on China for jet fighters and aircraft carriers. Um, I just think the list of what those critical industries are has expanded. In your speech at the Heritage Foundation on Tuesday, said that this isn't just a whole of government effort. This is a whole of society effort that's going to take government and business and the American people. What what does it entail to actually achieve the kind of uh, resiliency that you're talking about? It really begins by, you, you can't, one, I think we've reached a point now where there's broad acknowledgement that China poses a, a real near-peer adversary unlike any we've ever confronted. I think the challenge now is that all the muscle memory up here in terms of policymaking is built on a world that doesn't exist anymore. There's a great example is this China bill, right? And it does the right thing in saying, okay, we're going to invest in basic research in these key areas so that we have more innovation. But it doesn't take the next step, which is you have to protect that. That's already, the, that, those research institutes and centers at universities and et cetera are, are targets of Chinese espionage. And if you're gonna put more money into those systems, but you're not going to put more safeguards around them, then all you're gonna allow China to do is just to steal more. And, uh, and that second part we haven't been able to do because the academics and the researchers will complain. By nature, they're collaborators. By nature, they don't want restraints. By nature, they don't want to have to be telling the government, thank you for your you know, $10 million of research funds, but we don't want to be reporting to the d- director of national intelligence on a quarterly basis uh, about um, you know, what's going on around here and who's involved. And, uh, and we've got to be able to break away from that second piece. I think that's a real critical part of it. And I think the other part about it is wrapping our head around this idea that, look, the, I'm a, I'm, I believe in capitalism 100%. And, and the reason why I think it's better than one of the reasons why it's better than socialism is because it's always going to reach the most efficient allocation of capital, right? It's going to move investments to the more efficient place. But what do we do in those instances in which the most efficient place or the most efficient outcome isn't in our national interest? It is probably very efficient to buy rare earth minerals from China. It's very efficient to rely on them for the production of our of our medicine. 
I'm not sure that's not in our national interest. And so it, it, it's also wrapping our heads around that and, and the notion that just because it's the most efficient market outcome isn't always the best outcome for the country in these critical industries. Shifting gears a little bit, what do you think the Ukraine crisis means for Taiwan? What do you think China is taking away from this? On the one hand, there's to a lot of people, a surprising amount of Western unity. There's all these sanctions on Russia. Again, we can't apply the same kinds of sanctions to China. I mean, do you think that Beijing sees this as sort of a a couple month blip on their inexorable rise and America's decline? Or do you think that this actually gives them pause about trying to continue to make a play for Taiwan? Well, I most certainly think that it um, depends on it how it concludes. As I, I, it's, I'm pretty confident that at this point, Putin's operational uh, goals for the invasion are not going to come to pass, which is he wanted to move into Kiev, topple the government, replace it with a puppet, and, uh, and, and have the country turn into something akin to Belarus with him having even more direct control over uh, Crimea and, and, and portions on the, in the Donbass. He's not going to be able to achieve those goals. Um, I think it looks like what they've done now is recalibrated and are just going to focus the goal, the, the bulk of their forces on securing the Donbass and probably some of the coastal cities in the Black Sea. So I think China watches all that and says, the Russians invaded Ukraine. They did it under certain assumptions. It didn't play out that way. And they've suffered a humiliating setback. And they don't want that to happen to them, to Taiwan. So I think they're going to probably spend a lot of time thinking about whether they are, whether their assumptions about what would happen in a Taiwan contingency are actually the way it's going to play out. I think it's probably, to some extent, I think it's probably given them some, some thought with that regard. The one thing they both have in common is neither the Chinese nor the Russians have recent extended modern combat experience. The Russians have limited combat experience with an air campaign in Syria. Uh, the Chinese have virtually none other than some border skirmishes. And it's important to understand that because one thing is to exercise these things. Another thing is to actually go out and do them. I think for Taiwan, the lesson needs to be um, what was effective for Ukraine was, and what has been effective is the ability to raise the cost of invasion. If Putin had known that Ukraine had these capabilities before the invasion, he, uh, he probably would have recalibrated his strategy and maybe even his decision-making. Now, Taiwan has some complexities. It's an, it's, it's an island. It's, it's not easy to resupply it. Um, and uh, the sort of Western economic unity that's imposed tremendous costs on the Russian economy, that won't be nearly as easy to do to the Chinese economy. So I think the Chinese are watching how these sanctions played out and figuring out how to protect themselves from these sanctions. Yeah, there's a lot there that I want to unpack. The first is kind of in thinking about how they'd protect themselves from these sanctions, even if we could get the, the rest of the West on board. Obviously, these sanctions that we're putting in place on Russia are, are important. Are you at all worried that they will ultimately threaten the dollar standing as sort of the world's reserve currency? I fear that China's looking for ways to be more sanctions proof, but also to bring American adversaries under its umbrella. H how do we stop that from happening? Well, I don't think we can be cavalier about that notion, but I think in order to replace America's standing the dollar as a global reserve currency, you have to have an right. alternative. And I'm not sure that China poses a good alternative. There's very little to no transparency in, in their government and the amount of debt load that they've taken on. There's no transparency in their economy. The numbers aren't real. 
Um, so I think there's a lot of people that would be, I think there might be a desire to maybe diversify, but right now there isn't one. And, and it's not, it doesn't mean it can never happen. But I think it'll be a struggle for China to play that role as long as they, um, they're as, uh, you know, opaque as, um, as they are today about the, the standing of their economy, the decisions they've made. I mean, they've invested billions of dollars of their own stimulus into all sorts of inefficiencies that we don't have a full sort of understanding of. Most of the world doesn't either. You got a lot of attention in February when you tweeted that Putin has always been a killer, but his problems are now different and significant. And, and you said something is off with him uh, that, that led to a, a lot of conversation about, you know, what is Putin rational, irrational? We, we've heard everyone sort of weigh in on that, but we don't talk enough, I would say, about Xi Jinping's psychology. When you talk to China analysts, a lot of them fear that Xi sort of, he wants it to be a part of his legacy to take Taiwan, to bring it into China. In your speech at Heritage, you said Xi wants to reinstate China as the middle kingdom, the dominant power in the Indo-Pacific and eventually in the world. And you also had a really good riff in your speech. And in the show notes to the podcast, we'll include a link to the YouTube video of your speech. And you, you, in the start of it, you talked about how human nature is the same now it was as it was 5,500 years ago and will be 5,500 years from now. And you say that the, the war in Ukraine is the opening chapter in the return to history but it won't be the last nor the most dangerous one. Chilling words. I mean, Xi is a totalitarian. Uh, he's fascistic. You know, he's authoritarian, I think, doesn't go far enough to capture everything that's going on from the Uyghurs to Hong Kong, et cetera. What's your read on, on Xi and how do we deal with that accordingly? Well, he's amassed more power than any leader since Mao. And uh, he's done that through to the point where his thoughts, his sayings, his phrases are incorporated into public policy and are become a dogma almost. I think, uh, you know, if you look at his family experience, I'm not a psychologist, but if you look at his family experience coming up during the Cultural Revolution and some of the things he witnessed in his own family in that regard, I think uh, he certainly views that era in China as backwards and um, not the kind of thing he wants to see happen, not because he's uh, a liberal in the sense that he wants right. to open up in, uh, this country, but rather he, he, because he believes that China needs to define the future from an international point of view as opposed to retreat into itself. I think there's, there's uh, what, what I think has really, I think it's always been, the Chinese have always viewed the last hundred years as a century of humiliation, but largely an aberration. And they look at, you know, this is an ancient culture that views it, its standing in the world uh, for, for, for many centuries as one of the world's most powerful and influential, even though they, they chose to uh, look inward at a pre, even pre-communist point of view. But now I, I, I think they view the last hundred years as an aberration and that they, they think America is a great power but in decline and that they're on the rise and this is inevitable. The problem is the time frame they view these things is decades, you know, 2030, 2040, we view things, you know, 2023, 2024. I think for Xi, what's clearly important is the reunification of Taiwan, what's already happened with Hong Kong. These are key parts of his personal legacy. So that's why I always say, I don't think we'll leave this decade without seeing something happen in Taiwan one way or the other. As far as the psychology of it is, you know, one of the things that we have to understand is just because we think that the decision being made by a another leader is irrational or doesn't make sense doesn't mean they won't do it because it may make sense to them. They have a different worldview. They have a different reading of global events and they have a different reading of history. They have a different understanding of the costs and the benefits. 
and they're different than ours. And we struggle with that in general. I think we really struggle with that when it comes to Eastern cultures who have a, a different history and experience than, than in the West. And, um, and as a result, uh, it's even harder for us to sort of comprehend it. So I think the, the best way to deal with these things is to assume the worst and hope for the best in terms of your interaction with, with those countries. But clearly, I mean, I think it's beginning, especially in 07 and 08, with the, the, the economic uh, meltdown that occurred, it really had a powerful impact on Chinese leadership and, and, and it accelerated their view that the Western system was in much faster decline than they had anticipated. We'll be right back after a short break. Alliances are going to be important to check China. In your speech at Heritage, you said our alliances and partnerships will be more crucial than ever with Taiwan, Japan, South Korea, and India. The last three of those countries are part of this new so-called Quad Alliance. You know, in life, you find out uh, who your friends are during hard times. Uh, and I feel like some of that is also the case in international relations. And I've been really disappointed by India's behavior during the Ukraine crisis. They've repeatedly refused to condemn Russia, which has been a weapons supplier for decades going back to the Cold War. They continue to buy Russian oil. How do we thread this needle? How do we deepen this alliance with these countries in Asia at the same time that they won't even speak out against the, the barbarism in Ukraine? Well, we have to stop thinking about it as a Indo-Pacific NATO, because that's not what it's going to be. Look, what I love for I would love for India to join us in the strong actions we've seen from Europe, but their number one priority in the world is what they view as a threat from China. Their weapon systems, as you said, have been bought by Russia. You don't just buy those weapon systems; now you rely on them to maintain them, uh, to replace them, the replacement parts, and so forth. So that when you think you've got an imminent military threat just across your border from Pakistan, but also from it, from China, and your weapon systems you've invested in belong to Russia, you can't afford to get cut off by them because you can't afford to replace those with Western systems that are not interoperable with the rest of the things you have. So I think that's their first concern. I think there's also, you know, they had a long history of non-alignment and they've got a long history going back to the Soviet Union of, of, of those sorts of military alliances and so forth. But look, their number one objective, their, their issue number one for them is China. Issue number one A is Pakistan and everything else to them is far away and not at the top of their mind. And and so we're, that, that's one of the things we're going to have to deal with when it comes to the Indo-Pacific region. This, these are not, this is not Europe. A lot of these countries, they want the U.S. to be involved in the region as a counterweight to China. But many of them don't want us to force them to pick a side because they can't, their economies can't afford to be completely cut off from, from, from China. And not everyone's going to do what Australia has done. We're going to have to sort of keep our eye on the big picture here and not and be pragmatic about, and that's a tough thing to do in foreign policy because I myself am idealistic about a lot of things, but in this case, the threat of China is so enormous, we're going to have to be pragmatic about our expectations in these alliances and their purpose. North Korea is trying to get our attention again. They claimed in recent days that they tested an intercontinental ballistic missile. U.S. and South Korean officials are now saying Pyongyang may have exaggerated what exactly it was. In your op-ed for The Post, you warned against believing that China can control North Korea and, and hoping that treating China with kid gloves 
uh, will, will maybe make them act more responsibly. How do we deal with North Korea against this backdrop that you're talking about? Is it also being pragmatic instead of idealistic? How, how do we deal with a, a nuclear Kim? Three things. The first is we have to understand that the number one thing China cares about in North Korea is insecurity. They don't want a bunch right. of North Koreans coming across the border and they don't want a unified Korea because if it's a unified Korea under the South, uh, they view that as the United States and a, an American ally is now right on their border. Um, I'm not sure they're big fans of Kim Jong-un and his nuclear weapons and his displays and so forth, but it's preferable to having a unified Korean peninsula and uh, that's Western-oriented and preferable to having you know, millions of North, starving North Koreans coming across the border into China. So that's what's on their mind. As far as North Korea is concerned, for Kim Jong-un, he's, he's a relatively young man who has to figure out how to stay in power and for a long time. And his insurance policy is his nuclear capability. And, and he believes that the more capable he becomes from a nuclear perspective, the more pressure he can bring upon the world and the West to lift sanctions and, and allow them to uh, gain some economic benefit from that. And that's his primary objective. And, um, and so I think it, it's a very difficult thing to do, but that is to construct a pathway forward that protects South Korea's interests because we, well, we want an alliance with South Korea and their number one concern in the world is, is the guy on the other side of the border uh, from them that possesses nuclear weapons. But by the same token, we have to try to figure out a path forward that sort of walks North Korea away from some of these impulses. Uh, th right. They're not an expansionist power. They're not even a great global power. But they have nuclear warheads and they have the capability of delivering them to the continental United States. And so um, it's, it's a difficult situation that we now confront there. And, um, but China is not going to be able to control him or stop him from doing these things. They can bring some pressure from time to time, but they can't control it. And in the end, they're not interested. They don't, view, they don't view him as a threat. They view the threat, him not being there, as being greater. Not because they're fans, but because they're playing geopolitics, in a, in, again, in a very pragmatic way. Earlier in our conversation, you noted that there's this new consensus emerging that China's our most formidable near-peer adversary that we've ever faced. This week, the Biden administration rolled out its budget proposal. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said that the proposal prioritizes the challenges posed by China. The budget document mentions China 12 times. Overall, the budget ask is $773 billion. You also mentioned when we were talking that we need to get Europe to invest more in their collective security against Russia so that we can make that shift toward China. What did you make of the budget and, and what should the military be doing to prepare for this struggle of the 21st century? Well, I mean, the key is the not just how much money you spend, but how much money you spend developing the new systems that you're going to need uh, to counter what China is developing, which is anti-access weaponry. I mean, their, their design is that they want to make it so expensive and painful for the U.S. to intervene. In essence, you know, their investments in hypersonics and the like are all designed to force, to make it harder for the U.S. to intervene in any contingency that occurs in the Asia-Pacific region. Once they once we they, they calculate that once we realize that we lose all our aircraft carriers, if uh, if we tried to intervene, we wouldn't risk them, and that would be the end. So we have to have counters to those systems, and we have to invest enough in that. It's not just quantity here, but it's quality because uh, th th these asymmetric capabilities they're developing are are the, are the real threat to our presence in the region. At the same time, um, there is a quantity aspect to it. You've got to have sufficient manpower, weaponry, air forces, and, and naval forces that, to deploy, and which pivots to the argument, you know, the, 
it was un, unfair and unfortunate that um, even as I'm a very strong supporter of NATO, virtually every president in American history has asked NATO to do more in, in their right. defense. And some of them were more capable than others in their, in their capabilities. Um, and, and that said, I, I hope that uh, what has happened here, it's been terrible what's happened to Ukraine, but that it's sort of changed Europe's, uh, NATO's uh, view of what their capabilities need to be um, in, in, in this uh, moving forward. That no matter what happens, we have to foresee that for the foreseeable future, there'll be a threat emanating from the East and Russia. And they're going to have to have the capability uh, to, to, to protect uh, their territory uh, with U.S. help and assistance and with us being a part of that alliance and continuing to be a part of that alliance. But hopefully that's sort of restructured some of their thinking, at least initially it seems to have, even for the Germans who for the first time ever have, have uh, sent you know, offensive weaponry or military weaponry and hardware abroad to another country. And then you see a number of countries wanting to join the alliance as well. Uh, America is always going to continue to be indispensable to NATO. Um, but, but hopefully the, the Europeans will view from this the, the need to improve uh, their, their own defense capabilities. Two last questions I wanted to ask you. The first is on COVID. Shanghai is imposing lockdowns again as cases surge across China after weeks of saying it wouldn't do so. China continues clinging to this impossible goal of zero COVID and using all the powers of the state to, to try and achieve it uh, futilely. Obviously, their vaccine isn't as good as ours. You also uh, reintroduced a bill in January with several of your colleagues uh, that would authorize sanctions if 90 days after enactment, the Chinese fail to allow for a credible and comprehensive international investigation into the origins of COVID uh, at laboratories in Wuhan that were engaging in very risky research involving bat coronaviruses. What's your latest thinking on how responsible the Chinese government might have been for the, the origins of COVID? I think the chances that it was a laboratory uh, accident that leaked out of the laboratory and infected people is about equal to the chances that it's naturally occurring. Unlike previous pandemics, they have yet, which very quickly they were able to identify the animal and the source. They've not been able to do it. Um, and so uh, that's my conclusion. It's the conclusion of a lot of people in the know. I'm not sure we'll ever be able to prove it. Uh, maybe one day we will. As far as their lockdown uh, policies, I mean, what we've learned about COVID is everyone should assume that one day they're going to catch it. But you want, and, and the hope is that when you finally do get it, you're vaccinated and uh, the treatment options are, are much better at that point. And everyone who's tried zero COVID has found out that it's a futile uh, endeavor. Eventually, once you open up as you have to, people will get infected. They've kept their ports and shipping open, but factories have been closed again. So you'll see supply chain disruptions once again uh, that, that, that are lagged, usually three to six months behind. But it's disrupting cargo and ultimately will disrupt deliveries. And, as long as we depend as much as we do on China for so many of our products and consumer goods, uh, we're going to be vulnerable to anything that happens over there and uh, the decisions they make. Last question I wanted to ask you was on Ukraine. This war is still going on. You mentioned that the outcome uh, in the war is going to matter a lot for what the Chinese think about Taiwan. What more should we be doing to help Ukraine? Well, frankly, I can tell you that had the West not provided the amount of weaponry it's provided to this point, uh, this, out, this would have gone very differently. Um, I think that's been invaluable. I want us to continue to do that. I want us to, I think one of the things I hope we'll do and what I've been pushing on now and are going to be more pushing in a more formal way is two things that we've got to start thinking about is, A, what, what, what happens to these sanctions even when this conflict ends? 
And we've got to make a decision here about whether withdrawing from Ukraine alone is, is the end of these sanctions or whether these sanctions should stay in place as long as Putin is in power, which is my preference. I think as long, certainly if he's in power after 2024, we should consider that to be illegitimate. Uh, given the fact that he's manipulated the Constitution to remain in power that way. And so um, I hope we'll, we'll at least consider leaving some of these sanctions in place as long as he is in power. And uh, the second is reconstruction and the fact that the Russians have destroyed a tremendous amount of infrastructure in that country, not to mention the human suffering. Who, who's going to pay to rebuild it? I, I think that some of these assets that have been seized and, uh, around the world should be contributing towards that reconstruction effort in Ukraine. Senator Rubio, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Okay, thank you for doing this. Before I sign off, I want to share some news about this show. This is the final episode of Please Go On. I've really enjoyed all the interviews for this podcast, and it's been wonderful to hear from so many of you. These conversations will inform my work going forward. I'll continue writing my twice-weekly column for the newspaper, and offering analysis on the Post video team's live special reports around big events. I'd urge you to continue listening to our other Washington Post podcasts, especially Can He Do That?, Post Reports, and Capehart. I also recommend checking out Broken Doors, a new six-part series that investigates how no-knock warrants are deployed in the justice system. I want to extend heartfelt thanks to the team that has made this possible for the past year. Julie Deppenbrock has been an extraordinary producer. Allison Michaels has really devoted herself to making sure that this podcast was both smart and accessible. Renita Jablonski, the head of the audio department, has brought energetic enthusiasm to the endeavor. Michael Duffy, Becca Clemens, and Ruth Marcus have provided invaluable insights and support behind the scenes. All of us miss Fred Hyatt every day. This podcast was his idea, and it never would have been possible without his leadership. This episode was mixed by Veronica Simonetti, and thanks to Ted Muldoon, who designed our great theme music. Until we meet again, I'm James Hellman. What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day? The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. That's like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 supports your cardiovascular health. Visit RadioBeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL.